This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. Tyrese Coleman is a black woman. She is a writer, and she's from the tiny rural town of Brown Grove, north of Richmond, Virginia. She went to visit, and when she got there, she was shocked. I noticed a lot of, you know, you know, orange cones, um, evidence that some things were, were happening. And so I asked my godmother, who um, still lives on the road, mm-hmm. what was going on. And she told me, oh, well, Wegmans is going to be in my backyard. And that was no exaggeration. Imagine driving down a sleepy dirt road to the old home place and realizing the trees across the street from the house are going to be replaced with a massive building. The facility is being uh, compared to the size of the Pentagon. Coming up in this episode of Colors. My guest co-host is Hagar Chamali from the YouTube show, Oh My World. It is where I cover the top world news stories in a fun and easy way and why they matter to a young American viewer. And in it, my favorite part is where we expose the activities of dictators and human rights abusers while also sharing stories of those doing good around the world. And our guest is Bumi Akina Soto deputy director of the Wrangell Fellowship at Howard University. She was a political appointee in the Obama administration, serving as a special assistant in the Office of Land and Emergency Management at the EPA. And while there, she made note of a very important practice. You know, the administrative staff, the HR staff, the IT support, the sort of um, support community primarily was black and brown women. Um, And everybody who did policy uh, or sort of the substantive work were were white. And both of these women have been working to change that. That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. J.J. Green, and I'm Black. I'm Hagar Shamali, and I'm White and Middle Eastern American. And this is Colors. Hagar, thank you for agreeing to do this. I've known you for a few years, and I am so thrilled that you have joined us on this program. I remember meeting you when you were at the Treasury Department uh, several years ago. You've done a lot since then, but it's so great to have you today. 
Thank you. I'm just, JJ, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm really excited about our conversation today. Yeah. Let me just introduce uh, Hagar to everyone. She's a political satirist and a foreign policy expert, and that is quite a combination, and she does it very well, as you will hear uh, if you ever tune into her weekly world news show on YouTube called Oh My World. And let me tell you, that is really something to behold. And before she did that, she worked in the U.S. government in different national security roles at the White House, Treasury, and State Department over the course of 12 years. And she was the former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N., former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. That's where I met her, because as most of you know, that's my day job, national security correspondent. And uh, former director for Syria and Lebanon at the National Security Council. Former senior policy advisor on Asia and in the Middle East at the Treasury Department's Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. And it's, I believe, Hagar, correct me if I'm wrong, um, that is where you met our friend, your friend, that you have brought along today to be our guest. Is that correct? Believe it or not, Bumi and I met through national security circles after government, uh, yet we worked in government at the same time and uh, both of us in the national security and foreign policy world. But we actually met after. And I kind of wish I had met her before because <laughs> we both share a lot of views on diversity in national security and representation. So I will introduce Bumi Akinusotu to all of you. I'm really excited about it. She is the creator and host of the podcast, What in the World, which makes U.S. foreign policy understandable and relevant for ordinary people, uh, which is exciting and certainly needed across the United States. Her podcast also elevates experts of color in national security and foreign policy. And when she's not podcasting, she's helping young, underrepresented professionals break into international affairs careers, which is not easy, I can tell you from personal experience. Bumi also wears many hats. She is an advisory board member of the Next Gen NatSec and member of the Truman National Security uh, she also told me she loves anything red velvet, which I personally would agree with, though I do miss it after having left Washington. It was better in Washington, D.C. Bumi, I'm going to start off with a question, and it's a little news related as well. What was it like for you as a person of color working in national security in Washington? And are there examples of how certain issues might have been viewed differently if there were more diverse voices around the table? Yeah, um, Hagar, thank you so much for that introduction. And JJ, um, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, with this podcast and overall and and covering, you know, national security issues as a black man. (laughs) Uh, We need more more of you. Um, Wow, this is this question's a lot, but I'll I'll summarize it. So um, I came into government through the Obama administration uh, back in 2014, straight out of grad school, but I had many years of work experience in the uh, nonprofit sector. And I have to say that uh, one of the things coming into government that shocked me, which shocks a lot of people, if, if you're new to this space is like, right, like bureaucracy, right? And certainly in Washington, uh, bureaucracy is kind of the way things get done. Um, but also in terms of uh, sort of race and ethnicity, uh, Hagar, I'm sure you can relate. I, one of the things that jumped out at me was that, um, 
you know, the administrative staff, the HR staff, the IT support, the sort of um, support community primarily was black and brown women. Um, and everybody who did policy uh, or sort of the substantive work were, were white or white women. Um, and you would find, you know, folks here and there who were of color and doing the um, substantive work, uh, not that there weren't any at all, but what stood out to me the most was the number of secretaries, admin assistants, um, staff assistants, um, you know, IT analysts, HR analysts, payroll analysts who were who were black and brown. And that really disturbed me. And I was at the EPA, uh, which is a fairly progressive institution. Um, and and that it, I love the EPA, love every single person who I've worked with there. Um, but that really bothered me um, that we weren't sitting at the table talking about um, or not enough of us were sitting at the table talking about um, waste issues in communities of color or um, water issues in communities, poor communities of color. Uh, again, we still had many individuals um, and for example, the environmental justice office, the once environmental justice office that President Trump kind of decimated, uh, we certainly had people of color there. Um, and the woman who headed up the office of civil rights before I left uh, was a woman of color. Um, but, but still in vast majority of spaces, we weren't at the table. Um, hmm. and so I, an area, and I'm going to sort of answer the second part of your question, Hagar, where I've seen people of color make a, a huge difference, right. Um, uh, is when I worked, had the esteemed honor of working in Flint, Michigan, um, on the Flint water crisis. And there I joined a team led by two black men, uh, one from Flint, Michigan, um, who led the effort to address the uh, lack of compliance, the education issues around water and water usage and water filter usage, right? So these two guys were amazing. Lou P.A. Uh, had this up uh, with, um, I'm forgetting, Micah uh, Ragland. So I had the opportunity to shadow them and watch them and really take direction from them. And seeing how they worked, seeing how they moved in the community, I don't think that they would have been as successful had they been white, to be honest with you. Because uh, <laughs> uh, Flint is predominantly black yes, uh, and it is very poor. Uh, and, uh, so, so having them there, I don't think it was tokenism by any means. It was, it was legit. Like they cared, uh, they were experts in community engagement. They were experts in working through the politic of local issues. Uh, and they did a phenomenal job. It was again, primarily black and brown folks who were on the EPA team. And I had the honor of, you know, working with them and going to community events, sitting in on town halls, getting yelled at taking notes when we were meeting with elected officials and so on and so forth. So mm. that's an example of where people of color can be a powerful force of change um, or at least holding people accountable when things go wrong. You know, Bumi, I think what you just shared with us is perhaps the most important piece of information that's been shared uh, in a great while on this podcast, because what it does is it points out something that many people suspect, 
many people thought might have been the case, but they never see the evidence of it. By you pointing out what the secretary pool looks like and the payroll analysts look like and the support staff look like at the upper echelons of the U.S. government uh, and in certain uh, elements of the government, specifically national security, um, that these are all black and brown women that are doing this work, but you don't see them. Aside from from Susan Rice and a couple of other people, you didn't see them out front um, making decisions, sitting at the table. Uh, And I'm very interested to know what you think about now. How have you have things changed now? I know what we see out front right now publicly, but I'm sure you still have friends and you too, Hagar. Feel free to jump in on this. Have friends that are still working in these circles. Has it changed That's a really good question. Um, And I think certainly um, this administration has been uh, much more forthright and honest and open and willing uh, to have the conversation around bringing in diverse voices into the policy space beyond working in payroll, right, or support staff or even like, you know, a special assistant, right, which is still fairly high up in government. Um, that's that's what I was. Uh, and I do have friends who are at State Department who landed in the administration um, and some who um, who also got career positions uh, throughout throughout government uh, in foreign policy, national security spaces spaces. But there's still work to be done. Um, And yes, we've got Lloyd Austin, um, who is the head of defense. Um, We've got several other key individuals um, at the National Security Council. But um, I'm not in government, so I can't I can't speak Mm -hmm. to the current reality. But my my hunch is that there's still a lot of work to mm. get done. And I want to give the administration credit, right? It's been what, uh, six months, <laughs> seven months yeah. that they've been in office and there's a lot going on. So I'm, I'm going to give them a little bit of breathing room, but maybe uh, Hagar has, has more insight here. You know, in my, I was in government for 12 years, starting in 2006, sorry, starting in 2004 and left in 2016. And over those 12 years, the landscape of diversity and gender balance in staff and leadership roles definitely improved. But like Bumi just said, at the the time uh, when I left in 2016, a lot of work was needed. And you definitely see for sure now this very concerted, very public, very what seems to be a real committed effort on the part of the administration to to recruit diverse representation to uh, to have more gender balance and diverse roles in leadership positions and and when you know when I was in government there was an awareness for a long time that this was a problem and I'm I and I will admit I do think that I think a little bit on as both a Middle Eastern American and as a woman, I was the exception to the norm in terms of how my bosses really pushed me to be at the table, how they sought to promote me, how they recognized and valued this unique perspective I had and my diverse background and always sought to push me out there. Um, But I don't, I don't, from what I've seen, that's not the rule that really is the exception. I think I got really lucky throughout my government um, 
my government career. And uh, but I do see it improving. The thing that I'm curious about, Bumi, from your perspective um, and JJ, too, from your past interviews and and your work, given uh, since you've launched Colors, is do you think that this general effort on the part of both leaders of government and corporations to recruit more diverse representation, to promote diversity in leadership roles. Do you think that this is a trajectory that will stay? I mean, what I'm trying to say is have things fundamentally changed for the better in this, or do you feel like it's a temporary trend? Rumi, you go ahead first and I'll follow up. Sure. So I, uh, I think that there I believe that there is a fundamental change in mindset and awareness, right? It's kind of like if one um, has maybe been through a traumatic event, that trauma sticks with you no matter what, right? And, yeah. and you may forget it for a little bit, but maybe anytime you see the color red or anytime you're near a fire truck or anytime you um, are in a particular situation, you might be triggered <laughs> and reminded of that thing. And I think that that's sort of what we can expect out of um, the world, frankly, uh, is that I feel like we're, we're going to go into sort of autopilot but as we're in autopilot, there'll be little triggers here and there that remind us like, oh, maybe we should look at this differently. Now, will we see something grandiose, wonderful, just the, the sort of shaking of the system altogether? I think not, not certainly right away. And I haven't, the issue that I, that sort of keeps me from wanting to think that there's going to be this like earth shattering changes in short, we all go back home to our communities that look the way they look. And if we keep the issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, race, whatever, right. If we keep those issues confined to our nine to five and there's no reinforcement outside of that, like in our communities and our churches or places of worship and um, our social circle, if there's no shift there, then there won't be a larger shift. And this has been my issue with diversity programming since forever, yeah. like before all of this. Yeah. And so that's why I'm hoping that the shift actually takes place in the heart, right? Because if it takes place in the heart, then it does uh, spill into or play into, you know, the relationships outside of your work experience. That's very much like what I was thinking um, from my journalistic point of view. And, you know, you were spot on from my perspective, Boomi, because one of the most important things to me that I've never forgotten, as you mentioned, those triggers is eight, 10 years ago. Um, there was an individual who worked at the White House and, you know, I being a national security correspondent um, for radio and I wanted to do an interview with the president, uh, wanted to do an interview with the uh, national security advisor. And this particular individual said to me, you and your station are not a good use of our senior leaders time. And I've often wondered how that would play today, because he clearly felt comfortable enough during the Obama administration, which was all about, as you both know, inclusion, diversity and equity. He felt comfortable enough to say that. 
knowing that I was an African-American, knowing that I was working at a radio station, knowing as well that I wasn't working for a big newspaper or a big television outlet. But he felt comfortable enough and brash enough to say that. So the thing that happens to me whenever I make those requests and I've made them, you know, again, in this administration. In fact, we've been trying for a very long time to get Vice President Harris on the show and her staff, to their credit, has said, yes, we would like to explore this, but they haven't been able to get any further. I think some of it has to do with the breathless nature of the world we live in. And I think some of it has to do with people's views and vision about where they want things to go. And some people just haven't changed. Now, back in the day that we were talking about from before, I saw a lot of very positive change take place. uh, And, you know, some of that change kind of lost its momentum during the previous uh, presidential administration, um, 2016 to now, because of some of the things that swept the nation of thinking and the acting, etc. But um, we still have an issue. We still have a long way to go, as you say. And I think some of it has to be ferreted out. People, I think, also, you know, have to be honest with themselves about what they're thinking and be honest with everybody else about who they are. I have this saying that's called, Uh, Noble causes, but suspicious motives. You know, people will jump on the bandwagon of good when it's popular, but sometimes when, you know, the popularity wears off, then they go back to their old behavior. And I'm seeing a lot of that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, JJ. And I really feel bad that that happened to you, but I'm not totally surprised, particularly, um, uh, dare I say, in the Obama administration. I know that he he received a lot of criticism from people of color about who he surrounded himself with or who his, who the team was that advised him around social uh, national security, foreign policy issues. Um, um, Hagar can attest to this more than I can, uh, that very much white and male, very much white and male. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, so Wish that didn't happen to you. It, it's okay. It's all right. I mean, it's been happening for decades. I mean, I've heard that so many times over the course of time, but it's it was just surprising to me to hear it then. But it's it's not changed. There's still people doing that and engaging in that. And you know, I don't deserve any kind of special treatment because of my skin color. You know, uh, I deserve special treatment simply because I'm an American. Simply because I'm covering. I married the, the, you know, the U.S. government for the people of the of, of this nation. Anybody who is working for the people deserves a, a bit of recognition or some recognition. Not I don't need to be put on a pedestal or these folks don't need to be put on a pedestal. But that's a part of the reason why Colors is here for folks like you who are out there s- struggling to push this agenda to get everybody the opportunity to have their say. And so that's enough of me. Back to you, Hagar. (laughs) JJ, you know, I'm here furiously nodding with you. And so for the listeners who don't see it, I am furiously nodding (laughs) because everything you just said is just so spot on and so important and, you know, important for mutual respect and our society and careers, of course. Right. Um, You know, as as Boomi mentioned, I was surprised, I will say, I'll be honest with you, and I know that I'm not alone in this. When I, Treasury 
I came from the Treasury Department first. And JJ, you know Treasury very well. We met there. You were one of my favorites when I was there. Still one of my favorites. Thank you. And (laughs) it's true. It's true. And um, and it's Treasury when I was there was a very heavily white male environment. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I, I benefited from this this group of bosses and mentors that persistently sought to put me out there to to have me be represented at the table for me to speak to for me to be sitting at the table and representing treasury and i wasn't alone in that and that was a very unique environment and it was a very flat organization with very little bureaucracy and then i went to the white house and this was the beginning of 2010 so the very beginning of uh, the Obama tenure. And, so, and I'm not trying to point fingers or anything, but I was shocked at, at the environment that that felt like there was this boys club at the top. And the problem with that is it um, it directly ends up impeding your work, because when that boys club goes out for drinks or goes out to work out together and then they discuss your issues and decide they make decisions on your issues without you, the expert there yeah. without, yeah. without you, the person who has the actual perspective of the region, right? I handled Lebanon and Syria uh, uh, and I was chosen for this position because of my, my experience, my expertise, my background, Um, But I wasn't even there for these decisions. You know, it was it was disheartening. Now, I will say that um, there was criticism about a year into my into me being there. I believe it was a year in that a group of women leaders approached the chief of staff uh, at the time, Dennis McDonough, and told him, you know, this was a problem and it was impeding our work. And and people felt that there was a lack of representation, that there was a lack of gender balance, that that the voices around the table weren't diverse enough to be coming to good decisions. And he really took that to heart and did make an effort for the rest of his tenure to bring in more diverse staff, to promote leaders that were much more balanced and represented. And and as we've said, you know, they have a lot of they had a lot of work to go, but it's so important. And, you know, without going into deep details, I can tell I can't tell you how many times when we were talking about Lebanon and Syria, Syria in particular, because it was a crisis, how many times there was a fundamental lack of understanding. And because I was there, because my family is Lebanese and Syrian, I would say, I would explain, no, you don't understand. This is how they, how the citizens view things. This is how the government is going to treat its citizens because this is just how things are over there. And I was lucky to be in those roles, but but we needed more of people like me on all levels, right? At, at all agencies, um, seeing those sides of things to to have to end up with the best policies, right? The goal at the end of the day is to have the best policies for the U.S. government projected abroad, um, and to achieve national security objectives, of course. Um, so I hope that I, I've always hoped that that it that it continues this way, and and um, and that the younger generation in particular has you know, sees real potential and real hope for their career, um, for their careers in, I mean, I hopefully national security and foreign policy, but across the board um, and uh, and that they take interest in it. You know, you know, Boomi actually engages a lot with the young generation. So I'd love to hear her perspective on on how do you see Boomi? How do you see those you work with? Do you see greater interest from their from their part? Do you see hope? Uh, from their part uh, in in working in this field in general or in government or in Washington, D.C.? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, look, we're we're dealing with now. If we're talking about the the Gen Zs, um, and, and to uh, also including sort of the the millennial, um, sort of the younger millennials, we're seeing the most diverse population this country has ever seen in history. Right in terms of race, um, they are more and more mixed race. Uh, they are first generation. They are um, even uh, if you consider African-Americans who may have one parent who's from the continent or one parent who's from Asia or whatever, right? Like this is a very diverse and also probably a much more globally minded uh, uh, generation than previous. And what you see now, what I see in others in this space has seen is a greater interest in foreign policy and national security, right? Without a full understanding of how to break in Um, or the sort of, um, as you've alluded to, Hagar, some of the nuances, the cultural barriers, the uh, mindset, some of the political um, (laughs) aspects of of this work. They may not know about it, but they're, they're certainly interested in this space. And uh, certainly they are traveling more, all right? Well, pandemic aside, uh, this generation is studying abroad more. Uh, they are working abroad. They are traveling for pleasure. Um, they are interacting with communities, immigrant communities, um, and learning about the ways uh, that others see the United States. So I, I know for a fact, and I'm sure the two of you can attest that this is just a generation that is much more culturally, globally sensitive than their um, predecessors. And the way that this um, plays out in my work uh, and sort of the the areas that I see um, that I'm sort of observing as an issue, though, uh, is, as I mentioned to Hagar, they don't give to. Can I swear on the show? Am I allowed to swear or not? <laughs> Lightly. <laughs> Lightly. OK, so they don't care about um, people's feelings. They don't care about um, being culturally or I would say, um, let's say, organizationally proper. If something is wrong, it's wrong. Yeah. Um, and as this is the this is the Parkland shooting generation, right? Mm-hmm. This is that generation that showed up here to D.C. and marched their tails off and demanded change from government, which I believe they would have done regardless of if it was a Democrat or Republican in office. They are the generation that certainly more so than me uh, and probably the two of us, they've seen more school shootings than any generation. So they're used to active shooter training (laughs) at school. Wow. Right. Like it's the the world that they're in is completely different Mm -hmm. and they demand something. And so my hope is that um, when they decide to become diplomats or if they decide to work at treasury or wherever, right. The white house, no matter which administration or the the color of the, the political party that they're supporting. My hope is that the institutions are, um, ready to receive them because, Uh, If they see something, they will say something. And it may not be in the way that we would. They may not like send a light email. They might post it on Twitter. (laughs) They might post it on Instagram. They might, you know, do a TikTok about it or whatever. And that's not necessarily maybe like how we would do it. 
But my point is, is that um, they are not closed lip. Um, they maybe it's a, a product of youth, but they are not. Um, they are not. Uh, they're diplomatic, but from what I'm seeing, they're very um, confident in what they know and what they believe in. OK, and saying like, I saw that. And that is wrong. And they will course correct or try to course correct. Um, I've been course corrected this summer with the young people that yeah. I work with yeah. when it comes to issues of, you know, pronoun usage. Right. This is that generation as well, the, the pronoun use. And so um, back to the issue of, of race, I think that uh, I, I know for sure that uh, young people of color, um, black young professionals are absolutely interested and in looking to serve their country as diplomats, as trade specialists, um, and so on, on the Hill working on these issues. And it is um, my hope that these spaces um, have adjusted meaningfully in a way to receive them because they, they are ready. I'll just put it that way. They are ready. Yeah, that is so obvious to me uh, on a daily basis. Whenever I encounter these young people uh, in whatever, um, wherever I am, is their their approach to getting things done. It's it's about let's do it, let's get it done, and 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 let's you know do it. There's no need to sit down and discuss. There's no need to debate. Um, right. That let's just do it. Let's just go do it. And in some ways, that's that's exactly what we need. But as you said as well, Boomi, it's important too to remember that they're young, and some of them simply don't know the value of deliberation uh, in yes. before taking steps and making things. So we've discussed a number of elements today uh, regarding race and diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, and you know we have. I think I've I agree with both of you that we've got work to do. Uh, one of the things that I need to figure out for my own personal um, satisfaction, and maybe others have the same question too, is how do we move forward with this? Because the woman who is the diversity, equity, and inclusion director in Burlington, Vermont, which is eighty-five percent white. And all of the other nationalities just kind of fit in there, filling out the rest of the 15%. And she refused to have that title because she says that in itself is a problem. That title itself is a problem. So my question is to you, ladies, how far do we go to get this right? I mean, this is a big effort that's been made since the death of George Floyd across the country, across the world, in fact. But how much work needs to be done, how much more do we need to do uh, to make this thing truly work and to make it uh, sustainable? Boonmi? One, so I agree with her completely. Um, One is it can't be up to one person to unpack uh, hundreds of years, not thousands, depending on who you talk to. Of of um, just uh, just really crappy human behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and certainly in organizations, many of them have bitter histories around the issue of uh, 
inclusion, Mm -hmm. forget diversity, just like including people, including this is the case with federal government, right? Like uh, we've, we've, we've not allowed women and people of color in government until fairly recently. Um, So uh, we, one have to just recognize that it's not a person's job. It has to be too embedded within every aspect of the organization. And when I say embedded, it goes back to the point that I made earlier in that you, one organization cannot expect a diversity training or a racial equity training or a book club or whatever, a speaker, a heartwarming speaker who makes you boohoo. Mm-hmm. or even watching a video together, right? Which I know a lot of a friend, a few of my friends in corporate America talk about how they've started watching um, together, like over lunch, watching certain films and, and whatnot, which I appreciate. All these things are important efforts, but it's not, it doesn't stop there. It, it has to permeate within each department and in your household um, and in your community um, so that the work of the diversity inclusion officer or whatever isn't just um, it's not it's for not like it's not just for nothing, uh, because otherwise these folks will be in their positions forever. The idea is hopefully that a DEI officer comes in to provide a jolt, a boost, some context, some framework that's um, uh, that's ground in in uh, practice, that's grounded in in science, that's grounded in real world experience. Right. And then and then people do the work outside of that space to ensure that it endures. Um, and if people are thinking it's like switching a light, a light, the light on and off, they're in for a rude awakening. And, and I will say that, you know, given where I work during my day job, certainly last year, I was inundated with LinkedIn messages, um, with connections of people wanting to get to Howard students. And I get it right. Like I, I, can understand the, the, the natural um, feeling to want to go to an HBCU if you're looking for diversity. However, know that um, there are <laughs> other obvious ways uh, to get to communities of color and it does take work. Um, so the diversity inclusion officer, the HR person, the CEO, the IT person, you know, the person working on policy issues, everybody needs to be engaged, uh, personally, uh, and professionally, if it's going to go anywhere, um, that's lasting. Mm-hmm. Hagar. That's right. I mean, from what I've seen, you know, I've, I've done some work, um, on DEI with local schools here where I live in Greenwich, Connecticut, which growing up here, I'm born and raised here. Both my parents are from Beirut, um, was really not diverse and it's gotten better, but certainly nothing, uh, like I was used to in Washington, DC, which felt much more diverse to me or in New York city when I lived there. And the thing is, uh, you know, it's, Everything you've both said about the the woman in Vermont, for example, and then Bumi, the the examples you just gave now are very reminiscent or very familiar to what I'm seeing here in that there's this genuine effort, but it's a it takes everybody. And the thing that I find it keeps boiling down to is there are certain things that may be difficult in right. Like it's going to be hard for that town in Vermont to just completely change its demographics. Um, But conversations 
are not difficult to have or to organize, and yet they have been, right? These are hard topics. This is hard work. And it's it's hard. It's even harder for older generations. Um, it's hard for institutions to break their habits or their ways or their views and and to really accept uh, to just be in a position where they just have to learn. Uh, right. And listen. And and I find that even for those willing to do that, it's still an eye opening journey and uh, myself included. And that's I find that it repeatedly boils down to the same thing is you know, no, where, wherever you are, whatever industry you're in or sector, the, the, one of the most important things we can do is facilitate these conversations, whether it's within a town or within a school, or maybe it's um, a school and then the school from the town over, or it's bringing in teams and consultants that work on these issues to, to help you get there, to help you understand, to, to help open your eyes, to help, um, to help, uh, teach history as well, by the way. I mean, th- one of the things I have found, and I don't know how you both feel about this, but I've been you know, really grateful and surprised and disappointed, like all at once in things that I've been learning over the last year, since the protests of last year, and now uh, with certain statues being taken down, I'll learn about more about that person. Right. And and their objectionable past or or certain or scenarios of massacres and things like that, that that, uh, you know, just honest to God, we're not taught in school. And I wish I had taken my the, my own effort to learn because I do love history and I love to listen to audiobooks of all so- kinds of political history and such. But there are things I just didn't know. And I'm so grateful to know it now. But I'm turning 40 in a month. That's 40 years of not having known some of these things. Um, and I'm grateful to see my kids. I have kids who are eight, five, and now a baby who's 13 months. And I love that they're learning things from this perspective, right? There's So in schools, you are seeing this change. Um, and I think that that's going to be long lasting. But I feel like I'm rambling. But all this to say that no, no. it's really hard, right? This is really hard stuff, which is, JJ, probably why you launched Colors. Um, and I think the conversations will be the most impactful. It's super complex. And nothing that you said was rambling. It takes a minute to say these things. And this is a prob- part of the problem, Bumi and Hagar, with our where we are now in the world is we are so busy and just fire hosed by all sorts of media. I don't know if the folks, the tech world knew, they probably did because they probably did the research, how, how crazy things would be once, you know, all of this, um, all of this, um, you know, technology like Facebook and social media, like Twitter, all that stuff got going, how busy people would be and how, just distracted we would be, but it takes a while to say these things. And the other part of the problem is making sure you've got people's attentions to listen to it because anti-vax disinformation, for example, there are people out there who have no clue what the truth is about it. Uh, And I don't want to change the subject here because we're talking about race and diversity, et cetera. But disinformation is a part of the problem in some of these minority, some of our minority communities. They don't know 
uh, what the truth is. For, for example, here in the Washington area in Prince George's County, someone or some organization was distributing anti-vaccine flyers in the African-American community there saying, do not get the vaccine, it's not safe. That's a part of the problem that we have now. There's just so much going on that it takes a minute to get the messages out, and it takes a minute to think thoughtfully through them and say them and put them together. And that's exactly what you were doing, Hagar. So no, you weren't rambling at all. People that listen to this podcast are thoughtful people. And Boomi, of course, everything you said about what we've got to do with the children in the future, those are things that all of us, I believe, need to think more about and need to spend some time talking about it, specifically when it comes to our own responsibilities in our homes, our churches, our social groups, and and, and, and at work as well. Yeah, um, JJ, I, if I can marry the issue, because you, you certainly did not go off track with the anti-vaccine uh, conversation because yeah. it is related. Um, so I'm sure um, many have seen lots of articles last year about um, disinformation, right? And yeah. one of the things that has come up in the foreign policy and national security space is how um, others outside of the United States have been able to leverage the Achilles heel of this country, that being racism, um, to send out or to target particular groups um, around the issue of vaccination and also the election, right? Um, uh, I want to shout out my my colleague and my good friend Camille Stewart, right, who who does cybersecurity um, work uh, in the national security space, and she has written articles, and many others um, who are of color have tried to 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 help. Uh, policymakers, community leaders, and ordinary people understand the importance of knowing the information that you're receiving, because there is an intentional effort to confuse communities of color because of our history with the federal government, because we've had histories of, um, you know, malpractice, uh, experimentation of, uh, of, of just horrendous things done to the black and brown community in this country. So people know that uh, and feed off of that. Uh, and that is why I believe we've seen so much of the anti-vax um, rhetoric permeate in uh, particularly um, black communities. And I will say anecdotally, uh, as a child of immigrants, this is also the case in immigrant communities, right? Like they, my mother uses WhatsApp, my aunties, everybody uses uses WhatsApp to communicate with their relatives abroad. And same thing with me. And the amount of information that gets shared on WhatsApp that is just outright wrong about everything is, is mind blowing. And I have been concerned about this for a while, but there was no outlet. There's no place to sort of share this um, or raise the flag, but others, thankfully like Camille um, have been, have been working with like Facebook and others, uh, I'm sorry, Google and others to, to address this, but the immigrant community is also inundated with just incorrect, grossly misleading content around the vaccine. My mother almost didn't want to get the vaccine um, because she had heard that it was like something yep. that the Chinese had come up. Like it was just like really bad. And so, no, your, your point is not off the rails at all is all totally related. Yeah. 
before we um, go, I, I need to ask both of you, is there anything that either of you thinks we should be talking about before we leave this podcast? Has the government figured out how to reach the, you know, community, minority communities, immigrant communities, communities of color to get the right messages? I find that they're late personally. And I can tell you as somebody who worked in comms that the general rule of PR is that people pay attention to the first message or the first headline, even if it's wrong. And even and when you chase and chase to try and correct it. People rarely will listen to what comes after. And so we're already late. We as, you know, Americans who care. And um, and that's the thing that I, I I am a little bit surprised about. And because I think it's 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 I find having left government working my my medium is YouTube. Um, and so having studied and watched social media, it's not difficult to find out how to reach different communities and mass communities and communities of color. Um, but I don't, I don't know that we're doing a good job of it. Uh, so yeah, I agree. That's something I hope it's fixed. Boomy, any thoughts? Yeah. It's actually related to Hagar's point um, more poignantly about what people should know about. I, I, I'm a foreign policy, national security junkie. So I'm always reading things, uh, even though I'm not in government. I, I started the podcast because I, I was curious uh, about how Americans were absorbing and understanding what was happening at the time. And certainly I'm still interested in that now. So uh, one thing that I would point um, listeners to, and certainly you, JJ, uh, as someone who wants to follow this work, um, is the president's memo on revitalizing America's foreign policy and national security workforce institutions and partnerships. It's a lot of words. Mouthful. Um, it's a mouthful, but <laughs> if you just look up um, national security memorandum, uh, the White House memo will pop up. And it's essentially the administration's effort uh, to recognize that our foreign policy and national security issues um, can't really go far without the workforce looking like America. And it lays out several action items. Um, and, and the thing that I, I find interesting with this administration that I want others to know about is this memo is kind of like the, 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 the red, the green light, right. To move forward on lots of things. And one office that is sort of um, being talked about that's brand new to the Department of State, which I think will be important for ordinary people, is the Subnational Diplomacy Office. It's got a longer State Department name, but it's it's basically the, an office within Department of State that's looking to work with local leaders, city government, state government around issues of diplomacy and how local entities engage with Uh, individuals or organizations from other countries. This is really earth shattering for for this country. And I think we'll provide an opportunity for people to get a glimpse into foreign policy and national security, even if they don't want to work in government, even if they don't ever plan on, you know, traveling abroad, but just having access to that um, apparatus or that space will hopefully um, spark a curiosity around why we do certain things abroad, why we uh, engage with one country, but not the other, why we send troops to one place and not another. Right. And so I would encourage folks to follow the uh, national security memorandum or read it, and then also follow the work on subnational diplomacy. Again, fancy word for just like working at the local level on foreign policy issues. 
Well, I'll say this. Um, this has been a very, very beneficial conversation for me because we've talked about everything from my own personal experiences uh, from a race perspective to that of the planet, frankly, uh, and certainly this country. And the two of you have brought brought me to a place where uh, as hungry as I am always for knowledge about uh, the intersection of race and national security, which is kind of a little phrase that I've coined to describe the work that I do, uh, there is way more for me to learn and to do. So um, Colors is grateful to you, Boomi and Hagar, for being here today. Thank you, JJ. It's really been a pleasure. Yes, likewise. Thank you, JJ, for all the work you're doing and for these very courageous conversations uh, you're having. And, and yeah. Hagar, again, thank you for having me. So um, before you go, uh, Bumi, would you tell us about your podcast? I'd like to Hagar to tell us a little bit about her show as well and tell, tell people how they can find it. Yeah, for sure. So I actually ended the show uh, earlier this year, um, but the content is still up. It's under what in the world podcast dot com. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is on wherever you listen to um, podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, also on Spotify, Apple, all the all the places. So uh, if you want primers, if you are looking for unbiased, straightforward information, about the Paris Agreement, about much of the topics that have been now uh, resurfaced under this administration because they were ended or uh, reconfigured under the previous. I actually have done lots of uh, conversations and every now and again, I'll see an episode and be like, oh, yeah, I did talk about Cuba. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, what in the world podcast.com. I'm also on um, social media under what in the world pod or WITW pod on Twitter. Twitter. And I'm still accepting, um, you know, questions through my email at what in the world pod 2017 at gmail.com. But all of that information is also on the website. Excellent. Excellent. Boomy, thank you for being with us today. No problem, JJ. Thank you, Hagar. And um, it, it's again been a pleasure. Thanks, Boomy. It was so great having you. And I hope to see you uh, soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Colors. My name is Cortland Cox. My, I am African-American. I was born in New York and lived most of my life in Washington, D.C. The question of race means to me that we need as human beings to be able to fulfill what has been talked about in the Declaration of Independence, where every person is uh, has the right to write life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that any obstacle that comes into that, any, any obstacle that is made in terms of trying to block us from doing that needs to be eliminated. So my life's journey has been to talk about and to see how we can, to everyone, not whether you're black or whether you're Hispanic or whether you're gay or whether you're transgender or whether you're a woman, to make sure that all people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. You know, Hagar, thank you for bringing Boomi to this conversation. You know, I knew she was a pretty remarkable woman just looking at her bio, but that does not do her justice when she opens her mouth and just lays it on us 
with all of the remarkable uh, understanding and the gift that she has to uh, speak uh, and to make the case for diversity, equity, and inclusion, the, you know, the uh, situation that women face of color, um, that story about, you know, the, the support staff, the support pool in the, in the U.S. government, that was just a remarkable uh, reflection from her. So um, thank you for bringing her to, to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, I just, JJ, I love that you've created this room for these conversations with amazing people like Boomi. So I'm first very lucky that you've asked me that you've asked me to guest co-host. And I'm so happy that I could introduce you to Boomi. And, you know, she's beloved in DC circles and in the national security and foreign policy circles. I met her, uh, as I mentioned, I met her after government, believe it or not, through National Security Action, which was an organization that was founded by a number of the former Obama foreign policy folks. And we just hit it off right away. And every time we would chat, you know, people had to drag us off the phone, like an hour and a half, two hours into our phone calls. It's like, okay, we got to get back to life. And that's, that's why I thought she'd be perfect for this because she has such amazing insight. She wears so many hats and she genuinely feels strongly about all these issues, right. That, that really marry well with your work. So promoting diversity in national security, getting young, diverse leaders working in foreign policy and caring about global development and geopolitics and understanding why all this matters to them and giving them the hope that they can achieve, you know, a great career in this world as well. And, uh, and she's fantastic. I mean, you can talk to her about anything ranging from climate change to, the best red velvet cake in the area. Yeah. You know, she's just the best. <laughs> she is great. And um, she did all of that today and she did it well, really well. She's a great communicator. And um, thank you for being um, here with us to talk to us today. So uh, I want to ask you about your program, Oh My World. Um, where can people see it and, and what, what, what should they expect? Thank you. Well, thank you so much for mentioning it and for the kind introduction uh, um, about it. Oh, my world, I like to say, is my second baby because I had two babies last year, one in June, a real baby. Uh, her name is Emma. <laughs> and, and oh, my world. Hi, Emma. My, yes, she's the best. Both my pandemic babies. And oh, my world is on YouTube. Uh, I it's obvi- It also has presence, of course, on Instagram and Twitter at Oh My World Show. But you can find it on YouTube. It's called Oh My World with Hagar Shamali. That's me. And to sum it up, it is where I cover the top world news stories in a fun and easy way and why they matter to a young American viewer. And in it, my favorite part is where we expose the activities of dictators and human rights abusers while Mm -hmm. also sharing stories of those doing good around the world, right? Activists and dissidents and nonprofits. And that's a really important part of my brand because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to achieve here is to affect change for the better and to get a younger generation to understand and care about these issues in a language that makes sense to them. Uh, so we do a lot of role playing. I do. I wear a lot of wigs. I will make a lot of fun where I can. Uh, some of the news is sad, of course, but some of it is also really crazy and lends itself to poke fun. Uh, so uh, please go visit. It would it would mean a lot. Please subscribe. That means everything. It's free, of course. And like I said, it's on YouTube at Oh My World with Hagar Shamali. Got it. That is... Um... 
A really interesting show, folks, if you haven't seen it. Um, the thing that I am so interested in always is how she balances the serious need for credibility in bringing the news about things to us and developments to us and, and the satire. And she she manages to balance it very well. So kudos to you. And um, thank you for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, JJ. That means the world. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Hagar Shamali, and I'm white and Middle Eastern American. And this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. So you hear that voice every week on the show. Well, you're not just going to hear that voice doing the same old thing, which is this is Colors and coming up in our next edition. You're going to hear her on our next show talking about this. It's so simple. Hmm. And, and people don't consider that when it comes to issues of, of race, discrimination, marginalization, they're the big things they think about. They think of violence, they think of oppression, they think of inequity. But I don't think most people think of loneliness. That's the incomparable Hillary Howard. In addition to being afternoon drive anchor on WTOP, she's also host of It's Academic, a longtime program on NBC Washington that, that highlights the academic achievements of young people. She's been a weathercaster. She's been a health reporter. She's been a television anchor. Um, but this is one of her most important roles to me, being the voice of our show and being on the show, talking about these very important issues. That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. Yep, it's time to go. And before we do that, we want to say thank you to Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Brett Bruin, Joel Oxley, Julia Ziegler, Brennan Hazelton, Dan Shelley, RT DNA. Thanks to Arriva Martin and the Special Report Digital Talk Show. Thanks to Justin Covington, Cindy Smith, Deanna Howell. Thanks to Thomas Warren and Steve Weich of Howard University and now the NFL Network. Thanks to D. Smith, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Zeke Hartner, Sean Anderson, Mike Edwards. And for our music, thanks to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you to you for listening to us. And finally, just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as importantly, keep listening to each other. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also sign up at Podcast DC. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, or ideas, or guests, let me know. Just send me an email. You can do it at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.